Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac Podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's Word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org. Today, we continue on in Revelation. Last week, I made the statement that the most talked about subject in Revelation is Babylon, is Babylon. By the numbers, there are 42 verses about Babylon in Revelation chapters 17 and 18. 44 of the 404 verses in Revelation talk about Babylon. 11% of Revelation is about Babylon. And it is, in the big picture, mentioned 287 times in the scriptures. And so just take a minute just to digest all of that. The only city that's mentioned more in the scriptures is Jerusalem, which is about 800 times. And so clearly, if we're going to get Revelation, if we're going to understand it, we've got to understand Babylon. And really, that's true of the Bible as well because of its frequent appearance there. And that's where Revelation 17 through 18 comes into play. Revelation 17 and 18 provides another interlude another interlude, which is a break in the action to fill in some of the necessary details. It takes us back in time to give details about the destruction of Babylon. And as we know, that event was declared by the second of three preaching angels back in Revelation 14, verse 8. That angel said, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And this was then fulfilled in part during that seventh bowl judgment that we covered just a few weeks ago. In Revelation chapter 16, verse 19, the second part of that says, And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And now what we have here in chapter 17 and 18 is we have details about that. We got how it happened. What's the significance about that. And so last week, chapter 17 was about the fall of spiritual Babylon. Spiritual Babylon. The, the one world religion of the Antichrist. We're going to hear just a little bit more about that. It was portrayed last week as a prostitute riding a seven-headed, ten-horned beast. And if you're like, what's that all about? Go back and listen to the podcast from last week because there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And now here in chapter 18, this is about the fall of what we would call commercial Babylon, the, the, the political and economic system of the Antichrist. So spiritual and commercial Babylon, 17 and 18, they form a pair, which is something we've seen before in the interludes. And again, this is part of just the beauty of God's word. For example, if we go back to the interlude, which was in chapter 7, we had a pair. We had the 144,000 and the great multitude. If we go back to chapter 11, we had the pair of those, those special messengers that God sent, Elijah and Moses. In chapter 13, we had the pair of the beast from the sea, the Antichrist, and the beast from the land, who was the false prophet. And now in chapter 17 through 18, another pair, the religious and commercial Babylons. And so in today's text, we deal with the fall of commercial Babylon. In this, the Apostle John, he hears four voices. Anybody hearing some voices in your head this morning? Um, four is like, that's a good day for me. All right, usually there's a lot more than four. But he hears four voices. Um, he hears the voice of condemnation in verses 1 through 3, a voice of separation in verses 4 through 8, a voice of lamentation in verses 9 through 19, and then finally a voice of celebration 
in verses 20 through 24. But before we get into the text, would you join me in prayer? Father, we just readily admit this morning we desperately need your help. Um, this, is, this is tough sledding. There, there's challenging things for certain in this book of Revelation. We thank you for your help thus far in understanding and communicating. Uh, but God, we, we just would admit this morning we need your help. So Holy Spirit, would you come and illuminate the text for us this morning? And then again, may we not just get it from an intellectual sense, but may our wills and our hearts become engaged so that we would obey exactly what it is that you're leading us to do. So may this be a holy moment. May this be a time when we meet with you and hear from you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so let's begin our study this morning by first looking at this voice of condemnation. Voice of condemnation. The text begins by saying in verse 1, after this, which begs the question, well, after what? what? What is that exactly referring to? And I think it can be taken in one of two ways, maybe both ways. Uh, number one, this is after what John saw in chapter 17 with the fall of spiritual Babylon. This signifies that this is a new vision in chapter 18. But I also think it could mean after the events of chapter 17, meaning that after the fall of spiritual and religious Babylon. So this is important because what this tells us that 17 and 18, while the subject matter contained in them is related, all right, it's all dealing with Babylon or some aspect of it, it is not identical. All right, some Bible scholars will say, hey, this is all talking about exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. But I think this phrase, after this, tells us, no, there's, there's some distinction that is being made here. So, Chapters 17 and 18 both deal with Babylon, but in two different aspects at two different times, I do believe. And so if we look at a chart, and please don't get overwhelmed by all the, the details here, but what I want you to see is that the rapture of the church, if we go to the beginning of the chart, and just to refresh your memory, the rapture of the church precedes the seven-year tribulation period, which is what we've been in for quite some time now. The tribulation begins with the emergence of that beast from the sea, that world leader known as the Antichrist. He's a political leader who makes a peace treaty with Israel and who ushers in this era of the great prostitute, spiritual Babylon, a man-made, self-centered, doctrinally fuzzy, one-world religion where kind of anything goes as long as we just all get along. In the fall of spiritual Babylon that we talked about last week most likely occurs at the midpoint of the tribulation where that red arrow is at the bottom. When the Antichrist and the ten future kings who rule under him, remember what they did? What did they do? When uh, uh, we had the prostitute who was riding on the beast, but what ultimately happens? The Antichrist and these ten kings, they turn on the prostitute and they drive her away and ending this one world religion, at which point what happens? The Antichrist himself demands to be worshiped. So um, then commercial Babylon, the political and economic system, which is throughout the seven year tribulation period, when does it fall? Well, it doesn't meet its destruction until three and a half years later during the seventh bowl judgment, which is that second red arrow at the bottom. So that's the significance of that phrase, I believe, in chapter 18 here, after this. It's a new vision, means distinction, but it also means a different time. So verse 1 goes on to say, after this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright 
with his glory. The whole earth made bright with his glory. Ever had that experience where you're in a deep sleep in a very, very dark room and then somebody comes in and just turns on all the bright lights at once and um, husbands don't do that, all right? Not that I would have any experience with that, but don't do that because it's not received well. Um, your, your eyes have a terrible time adjusting. You squint. Well, that's nothing compared to what's happening here. Why? Well, because what happened at the fifth bowl judgment? The earth was plunged into deep, deep darkness. Darkness, it said, that could be felt. And now, what's happening here in verse 1? An angel comes down from heaven that makes the earth, the whole earth, bright with his glory. And so the world squints in response. And now that this angel has everyone's attention, he has a message in verse 2. He called out with a mighty voice, a theme that we've heard already, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. And here's where we need to revisit that important question, especially if you're new with us today. What is Babylon? Is it an ideology or is it a city? And by now, you know that the answer is it's both, right? For you see that in a general sense, Babylon refers to that entire worldwide political, economic, and religious kingdom of the Antichrist, continually at war with God and his kingdom. So it's an ideology that wars against God throughout the tribulation, and I believe it's warring against God today. But in a specific sense, it also refers to the Antichrist capital city. Now, how do we know that? Well, because five times in this chapter... Verses 10, 16, 18, 19, and 21, Babylon is referred to as a city. A city. So we just can't get away from that. Now, is it referring to a literal rebuilt city of Babylon in Iraq located on the Euphrates River? Is that what it's talking about? Or is it referring to you know, some other city somewhere embodying the spirit, the ideology of Babylon? I confess I don't know for sure what we do know is that the text seems to indicate that Babylon is both an ideology and a city which will have a prominent role during the tribulation. The second half of verse 2 tells us something about the city. It says, she has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. You get the idea. This is a very dark and evil place. Now, do you remember back in chapter 9 when during the sixth trumpet judgment there were four demons that led 200 million demons to kill a third of the earth? Now from where were those demons released? Do you remember? Those four, it says in verse 14 of chapter 9, it says, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Now, let's just put some pieces together for a minute. If Babylon is, in fact, the literal city of Babylon in Iraq, located on the Euphrates River, that would make sense. It would all kind of add up and connect, and so that might be a strong argument for that. The city was indeed, in chapter 9, a dwelling place for demons during the sixth trumpet judgment, just as it is here in chapter 18, verse 2, called a haunt, a dwelling place for demons. Except this time... Rather than the demons killing a third of the population, the demons influence. The demons influence the world's religious and economic systems. Look at verse 3. It says, For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. You remember this is the same language that was used last week 
in regard to spiritual Babylon and the, the prostitute who seduced the world into spiritual idolatry. Now the second half of verse 3 here goes on to say, and the merchants, the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And so what we have here is the description, again, of commercial, of material Babylon. Babylon, the city and the system, are characterized by greed and by affluence. By greed and by affluence, which creates this materialistic stupor, this drunkenness on things, inciting people to become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Their stuff matters more than the one true God. All of it inspired by Babylon, the dwelling place of demons, which, which tells us in spiritual warfare, you know, demons can do a lot of different things. You know, they can confront directly in demonic manifestations, and so some of you have seen and have been a part of that, but largely it tends to be more behind the scenes and subtle, and that's exactly what is happening here. And so this is the first voice that John hears in chapter 18. It is the voice of condemnation. As it said in verse 2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, this material kingdom of the Antichrist, inspired by demons and characterized by greed and affluence, will be destroyed. Next, John hears a second voice. It's a voice of separation in verses 4 through 8. In verse 4, this section contains both a command and a warning. A command and a warning. Verse 4. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, this is not new, for the Bible is filled from cover to cover with commands for God's people to be separate from the world. The Bible is filled with commands for God's people to be separate from the world. For example, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, it says, Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and then I will welcome you. Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And so, in like manner, this voice of separation in this section reiterates this command for God's people to flee the temptations of material Babylon, to flee Babylon the way that Lot fled Sodom. These sins are described quite graphically in verse 5. Um, very interesting. Verse 5, it says, For her sins are heaped as high as heaven. Now, what does that make you think of? Heaped as high as heaven, especially in context, what we've been talking about the last few weeks. Um, does it make you think of the Tower of Babel, right? The Tower of Babel. The imagery used here, I believe, is no accident. It's very intentional, making the connection all the way back to Genesis chapter 11, reminding us that this ideology of Babylon really is timeless, whether it's Genesis, whether it's Revelation, whether it's 2021. And then it says in the second half of verse 5, And God has remembered 
her iniquities. Now, what does that make you think of? How about in contrast to our sins? In contrast to the sins of believers. Check out Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. Um, it says, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Is there any better news than that? Talk about the good news of the gospel. There it is. The creator and judge of the universe. We have greatly, greatly offended him through our sins and our rebellion against him. And here it says that because of Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice for our sins, he will remember our sins no more, removing them as far as what? The east is from the west. But guess what? Such is not the case for Babylon. Because it says here, God will remember her iniquities. And he will bring judgment. Which then leads to some uncomfortable language in verse 6. This is, this is tough here. Verse 6 says, pay her back as she herself has paid back others. And repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion of her for her in the cup she has mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. There's harsh language in there, isn't there? Harsh language. Babylon's sins are here, first of all, identified as self-glorification, self-gratification, and self-sufficiency, just as we saw in the original Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. She is the mother of all organized idolatry. And so again, in response to these sins, this voice of separation has harsh language. He says, pay her back. Repay her double. Give her a like measure of torment and mourning. This is reminiscent of Psalm 137. It's to me one of the more troubling passages in all of the Bible. When Israel, fittingly enough, was in Babylonian exile, and the psalmist said these shocking words. You ready for this? This is, this is almost hard to believe it's in the Bible. Psalm 137, 8 and 9 says, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Did you know that was in the Bible? This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And there are actually other psalms that use similar language. They're called imprecatory psalms. They contain cries for God to destroy Israel's enemies, for him to execute vengeance. And it raises an important question for us, I think, which is, is it ever appropriate for God's people to pray for vengeance? It sure doesn't seem like that's the very nice thing to do, right? Well, I believe the answer is it is appropriate. And here's the reason why. For it is ultimately the plea that God's name be honored and for justice to be done. It is the prayer that good would triumph over evil, that righteousness prevails. And there's plenty of precedent for this in the Bible. We've got the Old Testament saints, the psalmists, the prophets, the New Testament martyrs, and we've got now tribulation martyrs that we've seen, which makes 
perfect sense that it's okay for us to pray this way. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we pray? First of all, hallowed be thy name. That's a prayer for God's name to be honored in all the earth. And then we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Church, that cannot happen until evil is defeated. It will not happen until evil is defeated, until it's finally, finally put away. And so, is it ever appropriate for God's people to pray for this kind of judgment to come? I believe it absolutely is, because it is what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. Here's the qualifier. With God's name and God's kingdom as our motive, and that's really, really important, because a lot of times we want to pray, God, sick them because they offended me. That's not the prayer. Okay, with God's name and God's kingdom as our motive, it is appropriate for us to pray for God's judgment, acknowledging that vengeance belongs to him alone and not to us. Well, the voice of separation concludes in verse 8. It says, For this reason her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine. She will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. Now let's consider this phrase in a single day. I believe it simply means that Babylon's destruction will be quick, complete, final, and sure. And I believe that the, the illustration of this or how it happens is that seventh bold judgment where there's that great earthquake and then 100-pound hailstones that are falling. These are not your normal hailstones. These are hailstones that will decimate Babylon, and they are on fire. So these are very unique hailstones. I, this is happening in a single day. It is quick, complete, final, and sure. And so that is the voice of separation in verses 4 through 8. Next, a third voice. John hears a voice of lamentation in verses 9 through 19. We're going to go through this pretty rapidly. And verse 9 says, And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Now, one interesting thought about this is that those who are viewing Babylon's destruction from afar are actually on their way somewhere. Where are they on their way to? The battlefield known as Armageddon. Okay, that they're mobilizing and this is happening. Whether that's true or not, don't know for certain. But what we do know is that world leaders will lament the destruction of their kingdoms. They put all their eggs in the Antichrist basket, and now they're watching those eggs and that basket be crushed. But they are not the only ones who are lamenting. Look at verse 11. It says, And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. So the world leaders, they lament the destruction of their kingdoms, but merchants will lament the destruction of their prophets. Remember that commercial or material Babylon is all about greed and affluence. This was big business, big money being made, but not anymore. And so merchants will lament the destruction of their prophets. But notice what they do not lament, right? What should they be lamenting at this point? Their sins. They do not lament their sin, which has brought this judgment, demonstrating just how drunk they are on the materialism of Babylon. Well, in their lamentation, they go on to itemize their lost cargo. I don't know if this is like a tax write-off or what this is, but here's a list. <clears throat> it says in verse 12, 
a cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, and sheep, horses and chariots, and slaves, that is, human souls. Now, one of the thoughts that I have, and one of the questions that might arise is this list isn't very modern, is it, in terms of luxuries? I mean, don't get me wrong, there's some good stuff here, all right, but is anybody really thinking if you got some cinnamon in the cupboard today that, uh, man, you're a rich person, right? This is not what we would today ultimately classify as wealth and luxury, and certainly not in the future, in years to come. So how do we explain this? And is this even an argument to say, like for preterists who believe that this isn't future, could they point to this and say, see, that's not consistent with what wealth and luxury would look like in the future? I believe the answer is this. The list of cargo here contained in verses 12 through 13 is representative of material wealth and luxury at the time of the Apostle John. All right, so our list in the present of what is wealth and luxury would look quite different, right? It'd be interesting if I said, hey, list the five things that are the marks of luxury for us today. And then that list in the future would look even more different. But for the Apostle John, he's the one having this vision. He's the one hearing these voices. These are the things which to him and his culture represented wealth and luxury. And so the list is representative of whatever riches will look like in the future. Well, one thing that is timeless and consistent with all depraved societies is the treatment of human beings as commodities. I don't know if that got your attention in this list or not, but this list of cargo ends by saying, and slaves, that is human souls. And ever since the fall, all the way back to Genesis 3, it has been Satan's desire for human beings who are created in the very image of God to be treated as things far beneath their God-ordained status. And this is an undeniable part of our nation's past. We're, we're struggling to navigate that even today. And tragically, it continues to be part of our present in some really profound ways that you may not have thought of. Um, for example, I think a contemporary example of how we treat human beings as commodities today includes pornography. The, the, in the stats, I don't have to, to bore you with them, but the Christian use of pornography and sexual addiction, the statistics are tragically off the charts. And can I just say, maybe this would be one thing that would cause you to break that cycle is to think that when you partake in such activity that you are treating someone created in the image of God as a commodity, something far less than what they were created to be. And your appetite for that creates a demand for that, which creates a business for that. And I would say this, if you find yourself trapped in that addiction, there is hope, there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness, and there is power to set you free. And the first step in that is to contact me or to contact someone in this church that you trust and to say, I need help, and let's let God take care of this, all right? So I just want to throw that out there to say um, it just seemed timely with this reference to treating human beings as commodities, human trafficking, Human trafficking, which is ultimately the result of our nation's sexual addiction. Abortion, I believe, is treating human beings as things, as commodities, 
especially when it comes to this drunkenness of the materialism of Babylon. I believe at times the, the motivation for having an abortion is how that child would interfere with a person's pursuit of a certain lifestyle. You see, Babylon is alive and well today right here in the United States, and it is hiding in plain sight as we treat human beings like commodities, material things. Well, the consequence of such depravity is outlined in verses 14 through 19. It says, The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth, for in a single hour she has been laid waste. And these are the voices of lamentation. Again, not for their sin, not for their depravity, which has brought this judgment, but for their financial loss as commercial Babylon is destroyed. Well, the the chapter ends with one more voice, and it is the voice of celebration, the voice of celebration beginning in verse 20. It says, Rejoice over her, O heaven. Again, we have some of this imprecatory kind of language where we are rejoicing over judgment coming to those who rightfully deserve it. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. You know, we know that um, throughout history, as we trace the theme of Babylon throughout the scriptures, Babylon has persecuted God's faithful even unto death. Many, 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 many martyrs at the hands of Babylon. And those faithful are here represented in verse 20 by the terms saints, apostles, and prophets. And we saw back in chapter 6, you remember some more of this imprecatory kind of language. In verse 9 of chapter 6, the cry of those martyred during the tribulation, they cry for justice to reign on the earth. Um, you'll remember um, chapter 6, verse 9 says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Here's another example of that imprecatory language, crying out for God's judgment, that their deaths would be avenged, and then that righteousness would prevail. And then in verse 11, Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Well, this prayer that they prayed in chapter 6, those who were martyred, those who were under the altar, this plea for justice is finally being answered right here in Revelation chapter 18. Look at verse 21. So then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone 
and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Now, what is the significance of this millstone? Millstones were large. They were heavy. It speaks to the fact that Babylon's fall will be violent and permanent. Just like when that giant, heavy stone splashes violently into the sea and sinks to the bottom of it, so it will be with Babylon, and the effects of which are described in verses 22 through 23. The sound of the harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. Here's the point. Verses 22 through 23 illustrate the extent of this destruction. It impacts everything. It impacts entertainment. Now, it's interesting that that is listed first, isn't it? Entertainment, one of our idols. Harpists, musicians, flute players, trumpeters. It impacts business, craftsmen. It impacts domestic life, lamps, and then social life, even weddings. That pretty much covers the totality of life. There will be no aspect of life not impacted by the sudden and complete destruction of Babylon. And verse 23 continues. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. So, again, at the end of the day, what is the ultimate sin of Babylon? It is the idolatry of materialism. The idolatry of materialism. And here's where I have to say, church in America, beware. Because if we're not careful, we can so easily and subtly fall prey to Babylon's ultimate sin, the idolatry of of materialism, the pursuit of things rather than the pursuit of God, focused on keeping and hoarding rather than on giving. And so we have heard, along with the Apostle John, these four voices, the voice of condemnation, of separation, of lamentation, and celebration, all dealing with the fall of material or commercial Babylon. So that's the text, 24 verses. Let's shift gears and talk about the application and ask our question, how should we then live? I believe the, the, the core application for this text was back in verse 4. We already talked about it a bit. We don't need to talk about it a ton more, but here's the point in verse 4. Then I heard another voice come from heaven saying, Church, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. That phrase, that command, come out of her, be separate. Don't just blindly, passively go along with the flow, go along with the world and its idolatry of materialism. And here's where we must ask ourselves the difficult question In what ways have I become seduced and intoxicated? by the materialism of Babylon. Is it bad to have stuff? No, it's not bad to have stuff. It's the idolatry of stuff that is the wide road that leads to judgment and destruction. And I know it's, 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 it's hard to find that line sometimes, isn't it? I wrestle with that. Where is that line between appreciating the good things that God has blessed us with, but then coming to a point where we become consumed with those things? 
I believe that this is what James was writing about in the fifth chapter of his epistle. I think it will ring true in light of what we just looked at in Revelation 18. James chapter 5, it says, Come now, you rich. And, and again, we might look around and say, I'm not rich. But we know better, don't we? By the world's standards, there isn't a one of us in this room that isn't rich. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. So I don't have an easy solution for this, okay? Because I, I, again, I wrestle with it myself. Where? Where's that line? And what do we do? How do we overcome the seduction and intoxication of the materialism of Babylon? I believe one of the key things that we can do to fight against the tide, to fight against the flow, is to live a life in which we give generously. To live a life in which we give generously. Intentional giving, sacrificial giving. I believe in all areas of our lives, that includes our time, our talents, our treasures, by holding loosely to the things of this world and not clinging tightly to them and instead clinging tightly to the things of heaven, laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Jesus himself said it is better to give than it is to receive. So I can't tell you what to do with this. I can present you the scriptural truth and identify and ring the alarm bell and say, you know what, we, especially here in America, are in danger of the idolatry of materialism. My prayer for you this morning is that the Holy Spirit would speak to you as I pray that he would speak to me and identify those areas that need attention this morning. And if you're good, if the Holy Spirit says, keep doing what you're doing, then be blessed. But my guess is, for most of us here this morning, there may be some conviction. There may be some areas where we say, you know what? It's interesting in our country, too, the, the, the things that we say, we need this. We, we get confused sometimes about the difference between needs and wants and living in a certain lifestyle, a certain level of financial expectation. However it is that the Holy Spirit might speak to you this morning, whether that's affirmation, and if so, be blessed. But if there's conviction, I pray that you will heed his voice and not fall into the trap of Babylon. Would you pray with me? Father, remind us about the fleeting nature of this life and just how the things that we do here on earth will echo for all eternity. I think of those words of Jesus, to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven rather than on earth. God, where we need some Holy Spirit conviction this morning, would you bring it? And may we listen to it? God, I pray that if we're doing it well, your Holy Spirit would bring an awesome sense of affirmation and a sense of blessing, a sense of, well done. Keep doing what you're doing. But God, we thank you for the truth of your word, which speaks to us so practically 
This isn't theoretical. This is where the rubber meets the road and where we live our lives and how we steward resources. God, may we come out of Babylon, be separate from her, and be people of the kingdom. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.